Well, hello, folks. Good morning. Welcome to the fellowship. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, the temptation of Jesus. Um, we're not going to be in the whole chapter, just the first 11 verses. Um, but um, hope you had a good week. Um, this last, um, well, Friday, I went to the funeral of a guy who taught me in seventh grade Sunday school for probably about half a year. I think he probably taught youth group before I got into the youth for at least 10 or 15 years, and maybe I was the straw that broke the camel's back for him. I'm not sure. Uh, but he, he, was an, he was an older man, um, and I don't remember specific things that he taught per se, um, but I do remember uh, just the, the love and care he showed me as a seventh grader. Um, he was always just one of the older men in the church when I was growing up. Um, but the thing that stood out to me the most was just thinking, thinking back about you know all the different experiences I had with him and, and you know interactions and things. Uh, the thing that stood out to me most about him was just the way he loved his wife so much. Um, his wife passed away a few years before, and she was wheelchair bound the entire time I knew them. Um, they had had a tragic accident and left her uh, paralyzed from the waist down. And left him with like one leg shorter than the other, had to have special shoes and all this. And it was just, uh, you know, his whole life surrounded, you know, taking care of her and loving her. Um, he still worked and things. He, he drove a bus for a little bit when I was a kid and he was in insurance and worked as an electrician and all sorts of things. Um, but he just, you know, he loved the Lord and he, he served the Lord. And it was just a, uh, just you know, he was just the kind of person that you think of as just an inspiration for us. That somebody that uh, you know selflessly served. Um, I never once heard him complain about anything. Not that I was anybody that he could have complained to, um, even in my adult years or anything. But uh, it was just a really encouraging time um, for that. And I, you know, I, has, has nothing to do with Jesus' temptation, other than I think we can be greatly encouraged by Jesus' example here in in Matthew as well. So let's um, we're going to read through these 11 verses, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it. It says, uh, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, You are the Son of God. Command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the high point, highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and with their hands they will lift you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Once again it is written, You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan. For it is written, You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and began ministering to his needs. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this example here that we have of Jesus. And I pray that it can be an encouragement to us. Um, even now, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 
So, um, temptation of Jesus. Uh, lots of things to, to point out here. One, it, it's right after his baptism. You know, we talked about that last week. Right after his baptism, um, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, the Spirit is the one that leads Jesus out to be tempted. God doesn't tempt anyone. James chapter 1 talks about that. God isn't the tempter, but like in Job, this uh, God uses evil forces to, you know, I guess accomplish his sovereign plan. And so here the spirit is the one that leads Jesus out into the wilderness um, to be tempted by the devil. And it wasn't just like Jesus goes out after this great, you know, story uh, at the end of chapter three with the baptism and everything else. Then Jesus is led out by the spirit to be tempted. And it's not like immediately he starts getting tempted, but it's he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and he was famished. So similar to you know, Moses fasted when he's bringing the law. He was had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah, the same thing. And now Jesus here. Um, so when these big events happen, uh, there's, a, there's a fasting experience that has happened. And so he's fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He's famished. I think that's important because it shows us that you know, there was a physical need in Jesus' body. Remember, he's 100% God, 100% man. And so I think it's important for us to see this is the time in which he's facing this temptation is when he's very vulnerable, very um, in need. And then it says, The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So that, if you're the stone, Son of God, is not a... The devil is not questioning Jesus' divinity here at all. It's it's what's called a first class... First, hang on, I have it somewhere. Well, whatever it is, he's not questioning Jesus' authority um, or Jesus' divinity at all. Uh, but he is um, he is saying, it's like, since you're the Son of God, is, is a, maybe a better way to say this. Um, and he, he quotes... Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 here, um, and it's referring to the Exodus. And that's what he says. Um, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. So in the wilderness where Jesus is, in this Judean wilderness, this is the same wilderness that John the Baptist has just come out of um, when he came in to you know, start baptizing people. Uh, but it's a very desolate place, very deserty, rocky. Um, and a lot of this, the rocks out there, the stones out there, looked like loaves of bread. And so he's saying, turn these stones into bread, you know, command, command these stones to become bread. Um, and Jesus answers, and he's saying, um, let's see, where am I? When Jesus answers, he answers by quoting scripture. Uh, verse 4, he says, but he, but he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus responds with Scripture. Um, a few things to point out here. Um, the devil is tempting Jesus, um, but he's misusing the Scripture. He's not, he's, not, um, he's not using it in the right context and everything else uh, whenever the, Satan is tempting him here. He's asking, you know, he's like, provide physical food like Moses did. Um, and there's a lot of similarities between the Exodus and these temptations here. Um, Jesus is sort of a likened to Israel in the in the context of, of the Exodus. Like Jesus comes and delivers just like the people of Israel were delivered 
um, and he's delivering us from our sins. And so, um, so that's that's how he responds. He responds with scripture as it is written. And uh, when he when he says it's written, he's he's quoting scripture. He's using scripture to um, to battle this temptation. He's armed with the Holy Spirit and with God's word. And this is how he responds to the temptation. Um, even in his most physically weak state, he gives us this example how to follow um, when, we're, when we are faced with temptation. Um, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, which says, So be humbled. So he humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that mankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. So the Lord provided this unfamiliar food to them in the wilderness, and he's saying he's, he did that to show them that they can't live by bread alone. So he gave them this unfamiliar manna. And Jesus is saying, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by, the very, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Basically, um, Scripture is far superior to any, any bread because it nourishes our soul, it nourishes our spirit, um, which is important for eternal life, not just, you know, immediate physical sustenance that we that we need and then um the next thing it says the devil took him to the holy city had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him if you're the son of god throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone so lots of things to unpack here one um Says he he took him to the holy to this holy city. The uh, the Jews are going to understand this to be Jerusalem, and we've talked a little bit about Jerusalem. Malachi three one says, "I'm about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger to the covenant whom you long for is certainly coming." Says the Lord of heaven's armies. So some people think the location here could be Herod's temple based on that Malachi scripture that um, that he's going to go up here you know, at the top of Herod's temple. And there's a Jewish tradition saying that, um, that the Messiah is going to appear before them in, the, in that inner courts there. And so Herod's temple, this high point, the Holy of Holies, is right above it. And it's a very high point on the temple mount. And so, based on this Jewish tradition, some people think that. Other people think the location is the southern, southeasternmost part of the wall around the temple, around Jerusalem. And so, we've talked a little bit about uh, Jerusalem some. We have some pictures. Um, can you go to that first one, that first picture? So, this is, uh, so that top part would have been Herod's temple, or this is a model of Herod's temple. And so, a lot of people think he would have been up top there. And would have come down in that inner court right in front of there. And then the next one shows. Um, so this is uh, a map of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is a city uh, surrounded by three valleys. So we have two of the valleys here um, on either side of this. And that top part where it says Mount Moriah, I don't know if you can see it. That's where the Temple Mount is. This is pre the temple being there. Um, this bottom part down here. I don't know if you can see it there, but it says City of David. And we talked about that previously, the City of David being Bethlehem. Now, there, I said there was two Cities of David, and we would talk about the other one at some point. Well, 
here's that point. Aren't you happy? We get to talk about it finally. So whenever David uh, went and drove the people of Israel up toward up toward Jerusalem, he conquered the southernmost part of it. He sort of took charge of that and they put that. So they call that southernmost little tip there the city of David. So we consider Bethlehem the city of David, but then also this southern little area the city of David. Um, and then eventually Solomon, his son, came and built the first temple there on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is, if you remember where uh, Abraham took his son to, um, you know, to slaughter him, and then the Lord provided a sacrifice there. And so this is this is where they are. The southern, so where Mount Moriah is, the south, southeasternmost part, looking over this valley here, which is the Kidron Valley, and that's the valley that you would go down that valley and then up to the Mount of Olives is over on the southern here, Bethsaida or whatever it is. Uh, can you go to the next one? Okay, so this is that this would be that that wall there the city of david is here and then that wall that there that people think this is the location where the temptation would happen would be there and now there's a great tall wall but then it looks over this valley you'll see here in the next picture okay so that's still the height of the wall you can see the wall goes up high and then there's all these different levels because this is you know a picture from 2015 versus you know, the temple's been rebuilt and the walls have been rebuilt since then. Um, but this is, uh, you can see all the different levels below that. And then the next picture. Okay, so this is a, this is a 3D, not a 3D model. This is a model of, of Jerusalem. So you can see the temple there and you can kind of see those valleys that run out that way. And then the next picture shows a better view of that. So here's another view. So you can kind of see, we can't zoom in too well, but you can see that temple there is in the corner, and it and below it is a huge valley. So it's not that it's just up a very high, but it overlooks a valley at that too. So um, could be inside the temple overlooking the court based on Malachi three. It could be here um, over this Kidron Valley. Uh, who knows which one it is? But uh, I think they would have known that it. You know, it, him talking about this holy city. All the Jews would have known. He's talking about Jerusalem for sure. Isaiah 48.2 says, Indeed, they live in a holy city. They trust in the God of Israel, whose name is the Lord of heaven's armies. And then Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord reveals his royal power in the sight of all the nations. The entire earth sees our God deliver. So it's understood that, you know, not only understood that Jerusalem is the holy city, which I think we all cut, we all know that, like today, but based on the scripture, I'm trying to get us into the, the heads of the original audience here. Um, so it's not understood that Jerusalem is the holy city, but also that God is going to reveal his power to this, you know, in the sight of the nations. And so, um, so that's the, that's the holy city here. And so he, he takes him there and he says, uh, if you're the son of God, again, that first-class conditional sentence or whatever that says if, but he's not questioning his divinity. He's saying, you know, since you're the son of God, essentially, throw yourself down. There's no question in, uh, you know, either Matthew's mind that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus is divine or God's son. Um, and there's no question that the devil is not questioning it either. That's just how this is. So since you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And, and Satan quotes scripture here. 
And a lot of people think that he quotes Scripture wrongly. Um, he leaves part of it out, but even the way he quotes it falls in line with how apostles would quote Scripture in, in this day. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't take it out of context per se, but he does misapply it. And I think there's a lot of things that we can infer, we can apply based on the, the devil's use of, or misuse of Scripture here. He misapplies the Scripture. One, um, you know, we should know our Scripture and the context for what the Scripture is. It's really easy to take Scripture out of context um, and misuse it if, and you know, we can fall for all sorts of, um, all sorts of you know, wrong thoughts, wrong ideas about uh, God, about our world, about ourselves. If we don't know Scripture and know its context, um, I'm sure you've probably heard it before. But like how how bankers can tell if a bill is counterfeit or not, they don't study all sorts of different counterfeit bills. They study what the actual real bill looks like. They look they look at the bill, they handle it a lot, they know what it looks like so well that whenever a counterfeit bill comes across their desk. It stands out like monopoly money, like it looks completely fake to them because they know what the real one looks like so much. And it's the same way with us in Scripture. We should know Scripture so well that whenever some false teaching comes along, it stands out like it's like it's a cartoon teaching or something. It should be that um, that evident to us. Um, and so, because of that, we should know Scripture. We should know our Scripture in the context of that Scripture. Um, two, we should also not misuse Scripture um, so we don't fall into temptation um, ourselves. You know, we, we, we often, I think, fall into the temptation of placing ourselves into the Scripture where we don't belong at all. Scripture is, is there for uh, you know, the original audience and who, who it was written for for that time and place, and we should look at it in that biblical and historical view. Um, I think a, a great example of this um, and you should probably just go watch it. Is uh, Matt Chandler has a sermon on on this, um, and I'll I'll probably share. Um, there's a there's a video talking about the context of that sermon, and like the the significance importance of it all. But um, we put ourselves in in scripture. You know, he says, "You are not David. God is not going to use you to slay your giants. This is not what we're supposed to do." Um, it's a it's a great it's a great sermon. It's a great video, but. Um, I think if we are going to place ourselves anywhere in Scripture, we should place ourselves on one of the crosses next to Jesus, because that's that's where we belong in Scripture. That's where we. It's going to help us give have a more accurate perspective um, of who we are in this story. We're not the hero, uh, but being on those crosses next to Jesus gives us a good um, good understanding, good perspective. Um, as Galatians two twenty says, "I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me." So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So um, so then Jesus responds to the devil's temptation with verse 7. He says, once again it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Now here Jesus is quoting um, Deuteronomy 6.16, and the way he quotes it is, um, um, sorry, the way he quotes it is is accurate. You know, he quotes this on the second temptation. He's like, I'm not going to, um, you're not to test the Lord your God. You're not to put the Lord to the test. 
I think when he quotes it in Deuteronomy 6.16, all of, all of Jesus' responses are from the book of Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy 6.16 is talking about Exodus 17, 1-7, the part that, that Aaron read earlier when the Israelites were ready to take off Moses' head because they were so hungry or so, so thirsty. They were ready to basically kill Moses. Like, you let us out here just to die of thirst. And um, he's saying, you know, you're not to put the Lord God to your test. Um, so again, Jesus face, faces temptation from his humanity, um, and he quotes Deuteronomy here. Um, when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, he doesn't say, "Well, you took you took that psalm out of context when it, of what what the devil used to tempt him with the, the scriptures the devil quoted." He doesn't say, "Well, that's not what the context says." He's, he used it as though the devil, what he said, was accurate. As though he had used it and applied it properly. Um, Jesus, Jesus has another scripture he uses to then go and defend um, and um, respond in that way. Um, and he refers to his father. He doesn't say, you're not to test me that way. You're not to put, the, put me to the test, but you're not to put the Lord God to the test. Um, because the way he's saying it is like, you know, throw yourself down and then God will come and save you with these um, with these angels that aren't, aren't even going to allow you to knock your foot on the ground or knock your foot against the stone. And Jesus says, you're not to put the Lord God to your test. And then verse 8, the devil takes him, high mountain. Um, he shows him the world and the grandeur and everything. And he's, so he's tempting him here with like, um, with all things, all that the devil controls in this world, the Satan is saying, "I will give you this if you will just worship me." So he's showing his he's showing his hand here. He's showing exactly what he wants, and that's to take the place of Yahweh, God. He wants the worship of God's Son to worship him and put him up. And so he's saying, "I will give you all these things if you if you throw yourself to the ground and worship me." And um, and Jesus is basically, you know, he says, you know, go home, Roger. Or he says, go home, Satan. Um, he says, uh, go away, Satan. For it is written, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So when Jesus quotes this here, um, I don't say he does it wrongly, but he quotes this verse. Um, and he, he's sort of throwing in a couple different verses together. But he's not quoting it verbatim. And I think that's very important for us here because he's getting to the heart of what those verses are saying. And so think about that from our perspective. When we're tempted, when we're facing some kind of temptation or something, um, you know, it's important for us to know Scripture, but it's important for us to know what the Scripture is meaning because whenever we're tempted, we might not be able to say some verse verbatim exactly as it's supposed to be or exactly as it's quoted but for us to know the heart of what that verse is saying that's going to help us deal with the temptation much better you know we, we might not you know get all the these and nows correct whenever we're quoting some verse in in dealing with the temptation but he knows the heart of the verse and he's getting to the heart of the verse here and then uh, verse 11 it says then the devil left him, and angels came and began ministering to his needs. Uh, lots of questions here, like why 
Why did Jesus need angels to come and minister to him here? Uh, what are were they doing here exactly? Um, the minister often has connotations of like physical food, providing physical food for somebody. First uh, Kings nineteen five through seven says, "He stretched out and fell asleep under the shrub. Suddenly, an angelic messenger touched him and said, "Get up and eat." This is about Elijah. He, in verse six, he looked up and right there by his head was a cake baking on hot coals and a jug of water. He ate and drank and then slept some more. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back again, touched him and said, Get up and eat, for otherwise you won't be able to make the journey. And then he makes this journey of 40 days and 40 nights across the desert, across this wilderness. And so, um, you know, this the Lord is providing physical food here for Elijah. And then um, these angels come. And I think they probably give him something to eat, something to drink, and they're ministering to him. Uh, there's another point in Jesus' life where angels come and minister to him and strengthen him, and that's when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's sweating the, t- the tears of blood, sweating blood and everything, because he's so agonized about what's co- what's to come um, the next day. You know. Uh, one, thing, one more thing I want to point out about the devil's use of Scripture is that he knows Scripture. Whether or not he uses it correctly or not, um, he knows Scripture. And because of that, I think we should know Scripture that much more because we we should know accurately how to how to defend. You know, the only offensive weapon we have is the sword of the Spirit, um, and so we should arm ourselves with the full armor of God, the helmet of truth, and all those things. But um, it's the belt of truth, I think. But we should arm ourselves with the full armor of God. But we should also carry with us the sword of the Spirit. No. The word of God. First um, Peter five eight says, "Be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl, looking for someone to devour." And that's true. Our enemy is out there. He's on the prowl. He's looking for someone to devour. And the way he's going to do it is by using scripture, twisting scripture, tempting us in different ways. Um, one verse I didn't have to put up on the board. I didn't. Think about it, but Hebrews 4, let's get there, read it, there we are, end of Hebrews 4, uh, 14, 15, 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. So, I probably shared this illustration before, but... um, this idea that Jesus has been tempted in every way and yet was without sin, um, because he never sinned when he faced temptation, doesn't mean that he didn't understand temptation more. Um, I think it's C.S. Lewis uses this example. He says, um, "How much more do we understand temptation? Like if I put out two candy bars here, and you know I waited 30 minutes and then ate one of them." And Aaron waited three hours, and then he ate one of them. Who understands temptation more? 
obviously Aaron would understand the temptation of of holding out because he held out longer than I did. And I only waited 30 minutes and dealt with temptation for 30 minutes before I gave in. And he had to deal with it, you know, three times as long as me. Don't question me on those numbers. They're accurate, I promise. Um, but he, he, he held out longer than I did, and then he gave in. And Jesus never sinned. So how much more does he understand temptation than us, who all have given in to temptation before? And yet he was, that, he was without sin. It says, We do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. That word sympathize is... Uh, there's this there's this term and, and Andre probably knows it in in music. It's called uh, sympathetic resonance. And so if you put two pianos in the same room and you stroke a middle C on one piano, the middle C on the other piano is going to vibrate, and that's called sympathetic resonance. And so whenever we're tempted, whenever we're hurt, and whenever we're faced with stuff, and like say our heartstrings are getting plucked by that. Jesus understands that, and his heartstrings are getting plucked with this. He sympathizes with us. He understands the struggle that we're going through even better than we do because he never gave in to temptation. Um, and so we can go to him. We can be confident as we approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. There's going to be a lot of temptation, a lot of things that we face in this world, um, but one, we have a great high priest that sympathizes with us, understands us. Um, two, we have the Word of God that we should be actively learning and studying in order to fight that temptation even more. And then three, we have each other. Um, and we should... Um, I don't think we should feel... Um, you know, I think a lot of times we do feel uh, embarrassed that we're struggling in different ways or dealing with different things that maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we feel like we... We should be further along in our sanctification to still deal with these things. Um, but we should feel comfortable with each other to share those things with each other so that we can pray with each Others can pray for us and pray with each other um, and hold us accountable on those things as well. Uh, I'm not saying that we need to have confession time amongst all of us right now or anything like that. But I'm saying, you know, find some, find some people, find your, find your group of people that you can share those things with. Um, and people that can hold you accountable to those things. Find your, your group, your small group, your niche, whatever you want to call it, of people that you can share those things with. Um, and if you don't have that, work on it. You know, it's going to take some vulnerability. It's going to take some some trust for sure. Um, but those are the kind of relationships that we should have. I mean, <laughs> we're called the fellowship. Um, and that's part of, that's a huge part of fellowshipping is, sharing those things, sharing our struggles with one another. And so, um, and then if somebody comes to you with, with something, um, hold that com- hold that confidentiality for them. Um, pray for them, check on them, and, and uh, love on them. You know, we should uh, be, I think we do a good job at this, but we should be a judgment-free zone in that, in that regard when people are sharing struggles and things with us. Uh, we should be judgment-free. So, um, we just... Show them love and care and support and um, and accountability. I think that's huge as well. Showing accountability to each other. Um, and if somebody calls you out on something, um, don't you know? It's easy for us to it's easy for us to push back against that. But if we've given somebody a permission to hold us accountable, and then they hold us accountable, 
good. That's what they should be doing. And I think, you know, again, you can hold somebody accountable with love, but I think it's good to, to, uh, to be open to give them permission to do that. So anyway, mainly we should know scripture because Jesus knew his scripture. Um, and Jesus used that accurately to fight against the temptation, but we should also, um, take advantage of the relationships we have with one another as well. So let's uh, close out in prayer. We'll sing a, a song. And, uh, I'm going to add something. Sure.